Hello everyone, Nicholas Crody here, Arcanex Features Editor. The interview you're about to hear was recorded live as part of Arcanex podcasting event series, Next Up, held at the Neutra VDL House in Silver Lake on March 4th. We've hosted Next Ups before at Giant Jai Gallery, at the Chicago Architecture Biennial, and at the A&D Museum. This time around, we focused on potential roles for architecture in the contemporary neoliberal economy, with a special focus on issues pertaining to gender and identity. In a sense, what we wanted to look at is how architecture is itself designed, and, specifically, how we can redesign the systems in which it is embedded. In what ways are people challenging these systems from within? How can we find loopholes in the current economic framework to create a more equitable world? How can we design support systems for those most affected by an unjust political economy? So we invited a slew of architects and activists to talk about their work. For the event, Arconnect partnered with my experimental architecture studio, Adjustments Agency. The other voice you'll be hearing is Joanna Kloppenberg, who co-founded the studio with me. We've also shifted up the format a bit, with talks happening in one room while interviews were being conducted at the same time in another. We hope you enjoy this interview from Next Up, Floating Worlds. So I'm here with Joanna Kloppenberg, and we're talking with the London-based architect Jack Self, who runs The Real Foundation, as well as edits The Real Review, and was the curator of last year's British Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. Jack, how's it going? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. The Real Foundation straddles several roles at once. You're a publisher, a curatorial studio, an architectural practice. What unites these various initiatives? I think, so the Real Foundation is a very unconventional model for, you know, practice, let's say, because it is, as you say, a kind of starting from the point of view of a cultural institute and then spreading itself out into other types of activity. But what Real stands for is the Real Estate Architecture Laboratory. And in a sense, our structure as a foundation means that we pursue a very specific type of social and architectural agenda. I mean, we're interested in uh, material culture, we're interested in the politics of space, we're interested in understanding particular ideas about power relations and economic relations between individuals through alternative forms of property. And as a result, we have a specific interest in housing, you know, for reasons I can maybe go into. But in a sense, uh, we're looking for how these different types of practices, and of course, they cross between basically uh, forms of uh, financial consultancy through to artistic practice. And when you are imagining uh, how these can come together, I mean, real is, is in effect a, p- a product of that thinking in which an attempt to create social and spatial equality really requires an interdisciplinary approach. Great. I'd love to ask you, so your practice seems sort of different from other architectural practices and even research practices in that it's oriented in parts towards you know, shifting the discipline and its focus. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, when I was at university, my professors would always say, really enjoy yourself at university because you can do anything here. It's not like that in the real world. You know, they're going to get you doing toilet details or car parking ramps for the next three years or cutting blue bits of foam. And there was a lot made about the division between practice and and academia. And personally, I, I don't think that's a, an, either an important or even a real barrier, actually. The, the reality is that 
people who work in academia are very aware of what's going on in practice, whether it's at the level of actual realized buildings or even kind of the way in which they're being procured or produced. And it's also true that, you know, people who work in even very large corporate firms are not completely divorced from their own personal interests in either the history of architecture or, or other kind of, you know, I think there's a lot more engagement from both sides than either party would really like to admit, even at the level of, you know, podcasts that people in an office will be listening to. That architectural culture is universal across the two divisions that have been artificially, I think, suggested. And so what real basically does is it, it really refuses to acknowledge that as a division. And if you don't recognize it as a division, what it means is that in order to make a successful building, it may be that at times you need to have an engagement with a, an architectural institute or, or a cultural foundation, or the other way around. It might be that in order to, I mean, we have a much more kind of comfortable idea that as a researcher, you might contact a company or a firm, or you might, you know, look to someone who provides a certain type type of consultancy because under the academic guise it's considered kind of appropriate to expand out in that direction in the other direction you know publications tend to be used by firms as a form of self-promotion but one could imagine very easily the idea of a firm conducting original research not for themselves but with a view to producing a body of knowledge and then, you know, publishing it as well. And in effect, I mean, we have seen firms that do that. I think probably the most successful would be something like OMA, who, of course, have AMO within their structure. And through some, you know, connections that, that I have had with OMA over the last couple of years, discovered that this, this role of having an internal cultural research group is really kind of beneficial for an architectural firm. And of course, there are others as well. I mean, SOM, for example, in the US has, has a, a long legacy of doing original internal research for no other reason than to promote certain types of cultural values. But of course, if you flip that around the other way and simply say, well, we're going to start from the point of view of a foundation because it does a couple of things. One of the things is we have articles of association. We have a kind of effectively, you could call it a mission statement, but we're bound by these, these goals, which means we can't do certain types of projects. There's not mission creep. Uh, of a kind. There's no temptation to sell out because it's just impossible within our structure. And it also means that it, it rather diffuses, I hope, the, the ego of the architect. I mean, if you look at large architectural firms, they have a problem that they're often founded around one or two or three big names. You know, what happens when those people die and a firm is completely structured around the ideology of one person? You know, in my case, I'm not a partner or a director of of a firm. I'm, I'm a director of, of an institute. And so it, one could imagine in the future that I would retire or that I would move to a different job and the next person to replace me is still bound by the same ideology because it's structured into the company. And I think that idea, you know, and one could also imagine that there's an infinite number of partners and directors and, and that they sit uh, on an equal hierarchy rather than being a kind of top-down relationship. And I think that's very key to us to also consider the architectural firm and the cultural institute as design problems for an architect. We'd like to hear a bit about some of your projects, perhaps starting with the Ingot. Mm -hmm. The Ingot was the first project, or really the second project, I suppose, in a 10-year project. I mean, this is a kind of personal research program, I would say. In 2011, I began to get very involved with the Occupy movement in London. And, you know, there was a lot of talk going around at that time about social inequality, about um, access to the city, about access to public space. and I'm very much a product of my, my time. I had never thought before the crash about these types of issues. And I had to take a year out 
and I went and did an MA in philosophy and I did it in the morality of neoliberal economic theory because this seemed to me like a, a really kind of relevant thing to be studying at that time. And the consequence of that was I began to think about how the relationship of finance and the way in which we procure and pay for buildings and the financial terms and conditions of buildings influences their form. And, and the ingot was basically a very simple question. Can we imagine a way to do, build low-cost social housing in the center of the city of London in one of the most expensive parts of the city? The conclusion of that was to basically develop a new financial model that allowed that to be possible. I mean, I, I won't go into more detail about that specific financial model now, except to say that it was not a single model for a single building. It was, in fact, a kind of algorithm of different financial systems that already exist. I mean, none of them were reinventions of the wheel. They were simply recombined into a different way. And it was tested out. I mean, I was in touch with Halifax Group, with PricewaterhouseCooper. It was a kind of proof of concept that was delivered. But the idea then was also to create a kind of 10-year program in which you, you test out these ideas, you refine the idea with a view to trying to create low-cost housing in an urban environment, in a dense environment with an ultimate ambition of, of building that, you know, and making it real. So in this sense, you know, already the idea of a 10-year plan when you're a student is quite unusual. And that was really, on my part, a response to the fact that, you know, I didn't know where I was going to live in six months' time. I didn't know if I would still be with my girlfriend or with someone else. You know, there was a huge level of instability in my life, which is true not just of students, but generally now our form of life is is highly unstable in terms of our employment and our living conditions. And the idea of a 10-year plan seemed to me like a way to reclaim something of my own autonomy. You know, it gave me the ability to have uh, a fixed idea of what it was I was going to do with my career and, and an ability to pursue a personal project beyond these very kind of ephemeral conditions that I was experiencing. Great. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about The Real Review, both the impetus behind that project and, and how it came to be. Yeah, The Real Review is our quarterly review. Its tagline is what it means to live today. It's a magazine. It's a subscription magazine, really, although you can increasingly buy it in, in stores. It's a rather an unusual publication. It's a collaboration between Real Foundation, which is effectively Architectural Cultural Institute, and a design agency called OKRM. And I think, you know, our relationship with OKRM has become increasingly important over the last year or two. They partnered with us for, they were part of the core design team for Home Economics, which is the British Pavilion in Venice. And I think what's really interesting about what they kind of bring to the partnership is, although their background is in graphic design, they're really thinking about two things. One is mass communication. So how can you visually communicate with the broadest number of people possible? And they're also thinking about design in very spatial terms, which is quite unusual for a kind of design agency with a background in graphics, which tends to be very flat activity. So they have a very kind of unique approach towards art direction. And the consequence of that is that in Real Review, you've got a couple of things happening. One is we're really thinking about the magazine as a kind of space, as real estate. It has a cost per square meter or per square foot, I suppose, in the US. And therefore, you have to make a real priority about how you present material. It's, it's finite. It has a fixed number of articles, comes out in a fixed period of time. And that really allows you to make a very clear editorial proposition again, almost like a kind of manifesto. And in this case, the, the ambition of real review is to create a general readership cultural review based in architecture, which talks about the types of things I've mentioned, spatial and social equality, inclusivity, tolerance, democracy. How do these spatialize themselves? What are the systems that govern our power relations between individuals and in society? Are they right? 
Can we examine them? And this is also why the review is so important as a form of text, because what the review does is it looks backward at material evidence in order to make a proposal for the future. And, and that's unlike a lot of architectural writing and general writing at the moment, which is about kind of opinions. And the problem with opinions is they can be easily rebutted or rejected. You know, review is, is really clear because it's founded in something which exists. And that allows us to make a kind of positive discourse. But in a way, you know, that's the kind of ambition of the, of the real review, which is that there are an amazing number of very, very interesting people working across sociology, material culture, architecture, fine art, literature, and a lot of their ideas are very much rooted in their own discipline and very hard, particularly in architecture. It's a very introspective discipline. It's very hard for us to communicate. A lot of the time, architects don't even want to communicate to people outside the discipline. And I think that's a big mistake because we've got a lot to offer as a way of thinking about space. And I think we're being underutilized as a societal resource and as a political force as well. So, you know, real reviews are attempt to kind of contribute to changing that and to opening up some of these really interesting ideas to, to really a broad audience. And, you know, the ideal reader, I mean, you know, the idea is that uh, an architect with a PhD or an architect with 20 years experience will find this magazine engaging, interesting, but also, you know, a, a really kind of lay reader. I always think of my mom, very intelligent woman vague interest in architecture, potentially open to being interested by it, but has never found something which really draws her in. And that's, I think, you know, the goal for, for, for architectural publishing in, in this century as well. Maybe we'll kind of round out with a question about your curation of the British Pavilion last summer. Can you tell us a little bit about home economics and the ideas that grounded it? Yeah. So Alejandra Aravena is an architect famous for only making half a house. You know, his model is to build half a house and then allow the inhabitants to build the other half over time. And his theme for the Biennale was reporting from the front line, which seemed to me a very kind of confusing military metaphor. I mean, I don't find architecture to be in its essence militarized. But, you know, if we're thinking about the front line of British architecture, I think it's definitely the extreme housing shortage that we have here. I mean, that the quality of life is really falling a lot. People are no longer owning their own homes. They're, they're renting, they find themselves in, but they have very few rights. So they're increasingly kind of exploited and it's, it's very expensive. It's, it's really a disaster. And the idea was, again, to kind of step outside what traditionally happens in an architectural biennale, which is you make a show, everyone comes, there's a lot of self-congratulation and then it closes and everyone goes home again. The idea of home economics was to say, you know, what are the financial models which are creating housing in the UK? And how can we make, you know, radical proposals for different types of housing? So as a structure of project, it was rather unique because we had five primary participants, but we also had a core design team, which involved fashion designers, musicians, lighting engineers, graphic designers, other forms of design as well, all working collaboratively. But we also had a huge number of kind of advisors. We had housing associations. We designed a mortgage product with the Royal Bank of Scotland. We were working with developers across a huge number of disciplines. And it was through a, a, a curatorial lens of thinking about the role of time in the home. Because at the moment when we design in architecture, we tend to think of the plan as being kind of static snapshot. You know, someone is making breakfast, sleeping in bed, having a shower, watching TV. And we do all of those spaces simultaneously. If we think about life 
as existing through time in the home, then the way in which we use space could actually be thought of very differently. And it also allows you to, to strip out some of the more problematic questions around housing, like, you know, cultural background, socioeconomic or demographic context, whether it's in the countryside or in an urban environment. When we think about space through time, those questions become a lot less relevant. So we had five time periods, home designed for hours, for days, for months, for years, and for decades. And, and the question was really, fundamentally, what is the difference between being at home for days and being at home for decades? What type of housing do they produce? What are the financial models which underpin them? And what is the space within the British context to make a, a really strong proposal? And maybe the final thing to say about it is, you know, we were very inspired by the history of architectural full-scale installations. And I think the the key to the home is, you know, everyone lives in one, everyone experiences it. If you have a general public coming into your exhibition and you have models and drawings, it's very hard to get into the mentality of what that might actually mean for the how your home is changing. And so by building it as a kind of full-scale architectural model, I mean, literally in the kind of sense of a maquette, almost like you built it out of card and then blew it up. The idea was that people didn't have to imagine, they could simply kind of experience. And in that sense, you know, the, the big takeaway, I guess, from, from that show was to say, Everything we think of as being normal in the home, everything we think of as being traditional and standard, you know, they're all inventions. Corridors an invention, the single bed is an invention, the kitchen is an invention, and they're all constantly in a state of evolution. And if we can view the house as a design object, as an artificial construct of social relations, then anyone can have power to change the way that they live. You know, go home and rearrange your living room. You know, put all the soft surfaces in one room and all the hard surfaces in another room. You'll instantly see how much of a construct your home is. And I think that kind of that openness and that encouragement to at a very personal level also just critically reflect on the spaces that we live in was, was a kind of key ambition of the pavilion.